Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode where I am talking to Benjamin Harris. Hi Benjamin, how are you? Hi Barry, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks very much for joining me today with this interview. Um, Your play is something completely different and I'm totally excited that it is going to be on Stories from the Grey Hill. Just briefly, can you tell us a little bit about the play? Um, so it's a historical drama with a very heavy emphasis um, on on quotation marks around the historical. Um, I, I've tried to stay as as factual as I can without being beholden to the uh, to the actual, you know, um, facts and and the mode of speaking as well. That's one thing that I think uh, yeah, listeners will will pick up on. It's it's written in a very modern um, uh, parlance. It's not, I'm not trying to emulate sort of 14th century Scots. Um, it's uh, it's about the Wolf of Badenoch, Alexander Stuart, who was the son uh, of the King of Scotland and then later the brother of the King of Scotland. He never had the chance to be king himself um, because he was illegitimate. Um, and I believe that's partly why he did what he did, why he was the way he was. He was a very, very um, angry and a vindictive and brutal man, and he carved out for himself something of of an empire within within Scotland itself, um, and then uh, lost it all. Um, spoilers there for the for the ending. Sorry um, for a seven hundred year old real life story. Um, but uh, it was it was the journey that he went on that fascinated me. Um, how this man who was partly entitled spoiled brat and and partly um hard done to son of of what must have been a very hard to reach father uh, and how those two things sort of uh, came together to to make his life story that's what really interested me so yeah it's a it's a historical drama about the illegitimate son of uh, of one of the kings of Scotland basically in a nutshell so, so Scotland's full of these kind of stories right so mm-hmm. one in one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was what inspired you about Alexander Stewart and why was it this particular moment in Scotland's history that made you want to write the play? There's a, there's a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, is when I moved up to Scotland for the first time, it was to the Murray area, um, which contains Elgin Cathedral. And in in visiting Elgin Cathedral, just as an interested you know, visitor, I learned this story about how it was burned down and who by and and this this narrative of the wolf of Badenoch unraveled. And that's a very cool nickname for him as well. You know, it can be both terrifying and also very um flattering, I suppose, to call someone a wolf, you know, especially in this day and age. There's a lot of uh, um uh, a lot of people that would be very pleased to be called the wolf. So there was there was um, that was the first interest was getting to the area, moving to the area and then learning about the local history. And then once I'd encountered this figure, um, he grew and grew because, um, of course, Badnock is nowhere near Murray. And he was also the Earl of Ross, which is, you know, uh, Inverness Highlands way. So his his influence spread out. And as his influence spread out, so did my interest in him. Now, you'll you'll know, and maybe a lot of your viewers will know, that um, Macbeth, as he was written by Shakespeare, and historical Macbeth were two extremely different people. The historical Macbeth was considered to be a very decent king. He ruled for um, a number of years. I think it was actually into the decades. And he wasn't responsible for the same treacheries and the same um, 
ill-thought-out act that the Shakespearean Macbeth um, is responsible for. And I was interested here to see that we had almost the reverse, that we had this young... He wasn't a prince because, as I say, he was um, illegitimate, but this young king's son who the institute of the monarchy was trying to sell as this, you know, wonderful lord, but who was actually an absolute, you know tyrant a real nasty piece of work so i i found that very interesting just just as a, as a reversal of the macbeth story um and then of course um being illegitimate it's not just the story of a king again which you don't need to look very hard to find it's the story of still aristocracy still royalty in a in a, in a strong sense but he was never going to be king and i like the idea of this boy who is sort of between the common world and the aristocratic world who grows into what what he can grow into and the only thing that he can really grow into because he's denied the chance to ever be powerful but he has been raised in a way that means he'll never be impoverished the only thing he can really do is turn to violence um not to take away his agency he was an absolute nasty piece of work and he chose to do the bad things he did but i can i can kind of see how his pathways were limited compared to a lower knight or a, or a higher prince or duke or something. So obviously there's this historic information regarding him. What research did you have to do to decide what aspects of Alexander's life to include in the play? Because there must have been vast amounts of research there for you to use, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was writing this play for about 10 years. Um, wow. And the first nine and a half years of that were basically uh, attempts at, at getting it started, but also research. Um, I visited yeah. a lot of places around Scotland that had connections to him. Um, so there are cathedral, there's the cathedral where he's buried um, down in, um, I think it's near Ayrshire. Um, and there's the cathedral where his wife uh, is buried in, in Ross. Uh, there's Elgin Cathedral, there's the town of Forest, which he burned down on his way to Elgin Cathedral. So there are all these places that are both near and far to where I live that you could go to and visit and get yourself involved um, in, in the research in a much more hands-on way. Um, there wasn't an awful lot online, um, apart from a Wikipedia article, which over the course of those 10 years did grow a little bit. I came back to it every couple of months. Um, there wasn't an awful lot to get online, um, save for one story, which forms the backbone of the play, but which actually wasn't, it didn't happen at all. And it's, it's you know, demonstrably provable that it didn't happen, but it's a really good story, which is why I used it for the play. Um, and that's sort of this basic idea of the man arriving and challenging him to a game of chess. Um, instead of chess, we have instead these recollections, the flashbacks in the scenes. Um, but it's a, it's a game of wits between the two. Um, uh, and that that was kind of that came from a couple of websites that were you know, amateur historians in Scotland that, that, that had found this story and put them up. There's also a book called The Wolf of Badnock written in the late 1800s. It's long. It's difficult to get into. Um, I, I'm, I'm dyslexic myself, so I don't do well with very old print. Uh, I managed to find a copy in a secondhand bookshop for about £20. Um, it wasn't the first printing, but it was like a 1910s, 1920s printing. And after about 400 pages, I realised that even though it was set in Badnock and Strathspey, 
at the time of the Wolf of Bardneck, he doesn't actually appear. It's very little about him. Um, so, yes, yeah, so not all the research ended up being useful, but at least it was interesting. Um, it got me to read <laughs> something that I perhaps wouldn't have otherwise read. So that's always a positive thing. I think what I liked about it was that the play's really dark and gritty. Do you know what I mean? And for me, I, I ask myself, like, was that the intention in terms of the style and atmosphere? It almost feels when you listen to the play, um, but for me, when I first read it, it came across like a movie script, if that makes sense. Mm. You've got the hellish Scottish rain. You've got this, you know, almost like Lord of the Rings atmosphere of going on a journey. Um, it was just lovely to read. Was that always your intention that to go for that gritty, dark atmosphere? Absolutely, yeah. It, it was never intended as a screenplay, though I do hopefully one day... I would like to write it as a screenplay. If any any TV or film producers are interested, then then do get in touch. Um, but it always started as uh, as a stage play, actually. Um, and then when uh, the Grey Hill came up and the prospect of an audio play came about, it seemed like such a perfect fit because sound is so integral to the to the tone and the atmosphere that I wanted to create. You know, it, it's easier, I think, in an audio. Uh, medium to create a stormy night than it is on stage there's a there's a, um, a sort of a um a, a fakeness to the stage which can be done beautifully beautifully well but when you hear the rain and you hear the lightning and you hear the foot it just it, there's something that hits a bit harder with audio when you're when your imagination is doing all the visuals for you um, and as a, as a writer or as a, as a producer all you're providing is those bits that that are essential, if that makes sense. Um, so in terms of, of, of did I always want it to feel that way? Absolutely, yeah. The, the grittiness and the, and the unpleasantness of the story and the things that happen and the things that the Wolf of Badnet does. You, you, you can't, in my opinion, you can't lighten that up. Um, you know, there are, there are some Shakespeare plays that you never see done for children. You never see Titus Andronicus done for children. You know, you can see A Midsummer Night's Dream and you can see Twelfth Night, but you're never going to see, um, uh, you know, Richard III, really. The ones that involve murder, death, plotting, cannibalism, etc. You don't see them for young people. And it was important for me writing this story that I didn't try and play it down to either a squeamish audience or a or a younger audience or a, a more modern audience. Um, again, when it was a, when it was a stage play, it was about doing everything that the story could do on the stage, and then in adapting it to an audio format, it was about doing everything that the audio format that I could do in the audio format, so to speak. So there was never any. Um, you, you get a lot of anecdotes from Hollywood or from the BBC where people are asked to tone things down, uh, get it, make it a PG-13, get all four quadrants in your audience. And I, I didn't have that thought at all. There are going to be people who would not enjoy this play because of the brutality of the characters. Um, and while I don't think I've overdone it, I certainly haven't gone beyond what history did. Um, I, I also haven't really wanted to to, to make him nicer or to make him more approachable as a protagonist. You know, protagonist and hero aren't the same thing. And, and no, nowhere is that more clear for me than in, than in Alexander Stewart. 
Yeah, it's almost as if it's Game of Thrones for the live theatre scene. And I was like, yes, more please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think a lot of the things that, that have inspired Game of Thrones in history, I'm pretty sure that Alexander was involved in very similar things, if not if not some of those actual uh, actual things that he did himself. Um, so, yeah. How did you structure fan, the narrative across? Oh, sorry. Continue. No, no, sorry. No, just saying as a Game of Thrones it, fan, no, I, I was quite comfortable in that in that area, you know. Yeah, me too. I think that's when when I was listening to the playback, I'm like, this is very much like Game of Thrones. And obviously watching Game of Thrones, I've been a fan of it. I was like, oh, this could be good for theatre, if that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I was going to ask you was, uh, how did you structure the narrative across different chapters and time periods? Okay, so that was a function of adapting it to to audio, to the podcast. Um, as As a Traditional play, it followed a much more um, linear narrative through Alexander's life. So you have the bookends of the man visiting uh, Ruthven Barracks. Um, and then you have the flashbacks and the flashbacks kind of occurred in order. So then when the project came along and, and uh, it was going to be four episodes, I thought, well, here's a chance to to experiment to try something new try something interesting hopefully make it a little more fulfilling to the listener on an audio by on an episode by episode basis so each of the four episodes became thematically linked either to the people in his life or to the events in his life so for example the first episode is all of his stuff with his dad with the robert ii of scotland um how they were imprisoned together by their uncle king david as he was at the time where after a failed rebellion um how he he was then placed uh, uh, made the justicier of scotland which is like the the head of enforcing the king's law um and all those kinds of events in his life that gave him that taste for power that made him feel like well why can't i be if not king at least you know get get a slice of the pie and then the second episode um based around euphemia of ross which was his wife i think i'm getting the episodes in the right order um which was a a marriage of convenience not a marriage of love at all because he was also in love with uh, a peasant girl called mary um and he had children by quite a number of women actually We don't go into an awful lot of that in the play, Um, but he certainly was not a man who was monogamous and faithful and and trustworthy. Um, The third episode involves the frictions with his brother, who became Robert III of Scotland, um, who was not as strong as Alexander, not as ruthless as Alexander, um, relied on others to sort of deal with his brother, so to speak. Um, And then the last episode deals with Alexander's downfall and how he... um, through his own actions, sort of, uh, again, I need to be wary of spoilers, but how he, um, uh, basically how, how, he, how he ended up coming a cropper based on losing the power that he'd got through his own, his own actions. He sort of built himself up and, and let himself fall at the same time. How did you approach then developing Alexander's voice and the persona and what influenced you to make those character choices? How did you create Alexander as a person within the play, if that makes sense? Mm. I kind of went against all the best advice and and lessons I'd ever learned as a writer. Um, One of the things as a writer that you are encouraged to do when you're either learning it at Nat 5 or higher, or if you're doing an MA, 
is um, make sure your character has their journey, make sure they learn their lessons, make sure there is something to for the audience to, to latch onto with a character. Um, and with Alexander, he very specifically doesn't learn anything. He very specifically doesn't um, mend his ways. He, he doesn't go on that journey. Um, and I think what I quite enjoyed was having the story try and lead him on that journey and because of his arrogance and because of his violence, him actively refusing. Um, he he is a reprehensible person. In everything I've read about him, in all the research that I did, he's a reprehensible person. So to have him earn something in my play that he didn't earn in life would have felt more false than, than what you'd normally do as a playwright, you know, chopping and changing what you need to to suit the story. It would have felt more false to to make him someone else than it would have done just to keep him as is. And because he never learned in life, he he, he was raised, you know, the, the son of the king. He was raised in luxury. He was raised to know that he was above the common folk. He never really had that moment. He never had the moment that, um, just off the top of my head, you know, the, the Buddha, um, Prince Siddhartha, left his castle walls, saw a, a dying man for the first time and then invented Buddhism. Alexander did not do that. He'd have seen the dying man, nicked his wallet and gone back in the walls. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what I wanted to do with the character is, is actively avoid him earning any um, any sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, victory, I suppose, any peace when the man himself was absolutely not that man. So he's a, he's it almost feels to me as if, yeah, no, it almost feels to me as if that's what we're kind of missing in theatre is some of those characters. And as you did say, like when you compare him to Buddha and the normal kind of storytelling, there is that story. But here's somebody who's clearly got his path, doesn't have a moral compass, but continues down that road, which is completely mm -hmm. different from every other normal traditional story that we've got. And I think that's what I quite liked about this play in terms of here's somebody going down this path. We very really know this path and we see it all playing out and we never get that as an audience member to watch or to listen or to even see in theatre. So when this piece of writing came to me, I was like, this is completely different to what is safe as in theatre writing, because it, it's not safe at all. And actually, the fact that it's based on a true person in Scotland that we probably don't talk about enough um, kind of shows us that brutality of our truthful history and actually the legacy of the differentiating of the different clans within Scotland at that time as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, fantastic to hear you say that. That's that's wonderful. Um, I, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that was what I intended the whole the whole way in terms of the the you know bringing together this sort of view of the of the Scottish clans. But if that's what you get from it, then absolutely fantastic. And uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm really delighted to hear that. Um, yeah, I, I think it it's it's been very interesting. It's been very very enjoyable. Um, and. It's it's really exciting at this point now to for it to be about to go out into the world so that I can see what other people think about that choice. Do they do they empathize with Alexander? Because they really shouldn't. Um, do they enjoy <laughs> watching his story? Do they 
do, you know, do, do they associate with one of the characters around him? Because there's a there's a, a, a cast of characters around him, and they're the ones that have the journey. So you do still get that dramatic thrust, but it's it's Mary making the decision that's best for her, or it's the brother finally doing what he knows he should have done maybe earlier. So the, there there are those character journeys going on. It's it's just not it's just not him. It's just not Alexander. I'm glad you brought Mary up because mm -hmm. the relationship between Alexander and Mary provides an emotional counterpoint in the play. So obviously we've discussed its themes, but then we've got this relationship through it. And what ideas did you hope audiences would take away from this dynamic relationship between Mary and Alexander? So there's a, there's a few things there. Um, firstly, and I, I'm in no way comparing myself to William Shakespeare, um, because how could I? But we're all influenced by him as, as writers. And it's, it's kind of my apology to Lady Macbeth. Um, Lady Macbeth uh, has been lambasted for the past 400 years since the play came out as the evil one, the villain, the one that convinces Macbeth to do, um, you know, the murders. And, and she, she is painted as the villain of Macbeth, and Macbeth is the, is the, tragic, um, the tragic figure. And obviously, in history, that wasn't true at all. Um, uh, Gruach is Macbeth, Lady Macbeth's real name. You don't hear that very often. Um, but she was actually the Queen of Scotland before Macbeth became king. And it was only through his marriage to her that he became king. So she held the power, the dynastic power in Scotland at the time. She didn't murder anyone. She didn't kill anyone. And so... When I was developing this story and I learned about his relationship with Mary and how Mary fathered him um, a handful of children, and it became very clear that she had nothing to gain and he had nothing to gain from her. Euphemia, he gains land. His brother, his father, he gains power and influence. Mary, he gains nothing. So then, was it love? Could this man love her? Could a man who's not seemingly capable of compassion for anybody else love this person? And that was an interesting um, dynamic for me. That, that's really why Mary became one of my central figures rather than a, a footnote as a, as a mistress might be in, in another narrative. Um, and I, again, going back to, to Lady Macbeth, having her be the real villain behind the story, I wanted Mary to be the closest thing this story had to a hero. Um, and I think for Mary and for Euphemia, I think they both provide um, very definite. They're not necessarily good people, but they provide with it for Alexander a chance to be good. They are kind of the, the ones, the characters that the audience are meant to relate to, um, are meant to feel for, are meant to side with. You know, maybe not, you can't relate to a countess, you know, but you can side with her given a situation that she's in with uh, with the wolf. Um, and again, Mary, she's a commoner. She's the only real commoner that has any character in the in the play. It's a it's a play of kings and queens like you would have found in the Elizabethan theatre. Um, and it was important to me as a as a working class, you know, kid, at least, you know, I, I come from a working class northwest England background. Um one of the problems that I had with things like, you know, uh, Shakespeare or, or even on more modern references, Downton Abbey, is that it's so heavily focused on 
one class, you don't often get to see that. Now, obviously, Downton Abbey, you do get to see the servants and upstairs, downstairs. It was it was quite mixed. But there are still a larger number of plays about the well-to-do that don't really look at that. And I didn't have the space in the story and the narrative to go into it in more detail. I suppose a, a sequel could involve, you know, people that live in forests while the wolf's riding through with his uh, with his bandits. Um, but for this play, I wanted to have at least one strong, um, honest but positive voice that represented that whole, you know, 80, 85 percent of of people that aren't in the aristocracy that aren't landowners. And that's that's kind of another thing that Mary became for me. So she's the voice of the normal people. She's the voice of, of well, the closest you get in the play to goodness and rightness. And she's my apology to Lady Macbeth for being painted as a villain unfairly for four centuries. Who is the man character in the play? And um, what okay. was your intent for him? So, um, as I was saying earlier on in my research, I found a couple of websites that had this story. Um, and the story has been, it, it's just, it's not true at all. Um, archaeology has disproved every facet of it. Um, but the, the story goes that in Ruthven Barracks, which was the site of one of his castles, he was cavorting one evening, a storm was raging outside and him and his men were in the hall eating goat's legs and quaffing ale and all that kind of stuff, probably drinking whiskey and having haggis, actually. Um, and there was a bang at the door. So the door opens and in comes this man dressed all in black, which is, I mean, it's a cliche, but my God, it's a hell of a cliche. You know, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> tool for a, for a storyteller. Um, and he challenges Alexander to a game of chess. Well, after a bit of threatening and, you know, roaring and, and not being very happy with this intruder, Alexander agrees. And the two of them sit down and play chess all through the night as the storm is raging and lashing about. So the men leave, the men are made to leave and they play chess into the night. The next morning, his men come back to the castle and they find him struck up to a wall, sort of hung up on the wall. And the soles of his boots have been ripped off. There's not a mark on him, but he's stone dead. And for me, that ties in with, well, mainly two things. Number one is um, the devil went down to Georgia or, uh, or crossroads. We have the, the devil meets you at crossroads and um, challenges you and you accept and then the devil gets your soul. And secondly is the, sixth, uh, the seventh seal. Um, which is the Ingmar Bergman film um, with Max von Sydow, where he plays chess with uh, with the Grim Reaper. So I, I kind of took the Wolf of Badnik story, which has existed since at least the 1700s. It probably wasn't around at the time because he died down south of natural causes. You know, he, 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 this did not happen to him in real life at all, and that is demonstrably provable. Um, but I love the story, and I thought that idea of mixing a deal with the devil with you know, trying to cheat death with um, almost having this, this the, the man who is either a devil or an angel of vengeance or some manner of supernatural entity, probably tied in with Christianity. I mean, I'm, I myself am not a Christian, um, but obviously Alexander would have been and, and most of Scotland uh, still is. So I, I, I have that sort of instinct when doing a historical Scottish story to still tie it into to sort of um, a Christian 
religious context. So the man is, is that. Is he the devil? Is he the angel of vengeance? Is he some messenger of a higher power that has come to try and salvage what he can of Alexander's soul? And then the story, of course, is Alexander doesn't see his soul as needing salvaging, which is, you know, what I've said before about him not making the change, not seeing the error of his ways. Um, the, the, the man is the agent of change and Alexander refuses to change. And that's uh, that's where that's where it all leads to. I think, as you've said, one of the things about a play that's based in this period is about capturing the dialect, how people spoke, um, slang words if there was any, how to keep it within that period tone. How did you capture that and what was your thought process about writing this piece of theatre and as you said it's so way, well far back, how did you go about trying to keep some of that for a modern time? Um, I think mostly I didn't. Mostly I just wrote modern sort of um, uh, uh, um, slang, uh, modern dialect. It, it, there's a lot of Doric in there which wouldn't have existed, um, you know, seven, eight hundred years ago. Um, I wanted it to sound to modern people like it might have sounded to contemporary people back then. Um, it's one of the things, that, again, name-checking Shakespeare that he did. Um, we're 400 years on now, so it sounds very heightened, but in, in 1600 or, or the late 1500s, it would have sounded quite normal to most of his audience, but it wouldn't have sounded like the Romans he was talking about or the, the ancient Europeans he was talking about. So I kind of, I kind of did the same thing. I, I wrote for a modern audience, trying to keep that sort of that dialect, that, that informal speech that a modern audience would be very used to. And then there were times occasionally when I would go in and I would alter a line here or alter a line there to make it sound a little bit more faux historical. So I wasn't I wasn't learning old Scots and I wasn't you know I wasn't learning ancient languages though I, I don't I don't object to that in the future if I ever get a chance to do that but for this occasion I wasn't I wasn't in a position to be able to do that so I thought I'm not even going to try and I didn't want it to sound like it was from an older period between then and now because that would have just been anachronistic so you kind of have to go with um, really faithful to, to how it was then or or just do it as it is now, use the language as it is now. And that's kind of what I went for. Uh, when I did go for a bit more of a heightened mode of speech in some of the characters, again, it was going back to class. It was generally the kings and the higher classes that had a slightly different way of speaking. Uh, the bishop, uh, Bishop Burr of Elgin, um, he, he speaks much more formally um, because he's speaking to, to countesses and princes. Um, Alexander does not speak in that way, even though he's the son of the king and, and later the brother of the king. He speaks much more like his Caterans, like his bandits. Um, and then again, you look at Euphemia, you look at Mary. Uh, it's it's all to do with the class rather than the time period that they're, that they're inhabiting. Um, so, yeah, basically, I didn't um, accept once or twice to try and make it seem like I did. Um, but I think I think I would do the same again. I think it, it to my ear, certainly. Um, it sounds a lot better being in modern English and a modern Scottish um, accent and dialect than 
than some ham-fisted, you know, Englishman's attempt to write medieval Scots. So, yeah. I've actually produced uh, a Scots audio theatre production and it can be hard. And I've actually worked <laughs> with actors who have found it hard. <laughs> and I've actually had time with a writer translating for the actors just what it means and how to pronounce it. So I think making the choice for this play was the right choice by making it more modern because then it makes the story more accessible. But you're spot on in the terms of you can hear the differences in class throughout the play and the way the characters speak. And I suppose I should have re. I should have rephrased that question a little bit better, but you did answer it because it was all to do with class. And by playing with class, it almost has felt as though like you were a painter with lots of different colours. And when you listen to the play, you'll understand after hearing this question what we're talking about, which is quite hard if you've never listened to the full play. But yeah, no, it's lovely, mate. It really is nice. So last question. Can't believe 10 questions in. What's your aspirations for the future of the piece? So I have my realistic aspirations and I have my fantasy aspirations. My fantasy aspirations involve a deal with Film 4 or BBC to make a, a mid-budget film. Um, I reckon you could do something like this in 10 to 15 million pounds or dollars. It wouldn't even be, need to be that expensive. Um, <laughs> so if there's any film producers who are still listening, still watching, um, give me a shout. In terms Somebody of realistic... Apple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, Apple TV would be very good, or uh, or one of those yes, sort of big streams at the moment. I think Netflix did one with Chris Pine as Robert the Bruce a few years back, and it was absolutely fabulous. Really, really good piece of cinema. Um, so, yeah, so that would be my absolute dream for it. Um, in terms of more realistic aspirations, um, I would. It's it's not a huge cast, um, and it's not a very um, complicated set or set of props. You know, a couple of costumes. Um, under 10 actors and you could do this on stage and I would love one day um, either directing myself which wouldn't be my first choice but if, if no one else wanted to or working with a director to put it on as a piece of small-scale touring theatre and have people all around Scotland see it and I think if it if it did well if it grew legs there's a lot of um, uh, scar Scottish diaspora in America or in Australia or Canada, you know, there's places around the English speaking world that have a, a strong Scottish link that I think it could do very well in. Um, and, and wherever else values theatre, you know, Germany, Poland, Estonia, very big countries for theatre still. So I'm going back into my fantasy aspirations now, aren't I, with the world tour? But, <laughs> no, uh, not at all. A, a small, a small scale tour of it would be, would be fabulous. Um, and also, I mean, the, the podcast is beyond what I'd reasonably expected to happen to this play. Certainly so soon, you know, I, I only finished it, um, started it over 10 years ago, only finished it um, about a year, year and a half ago. Um, and then already, you know, it, it's, it's come onto the gray Hill and, and it's, it's going to be heard by bigger audiences than just me and three mates down the pub. So I'm delighted that it's, it's already moved further than I, than I could have hoped. So I suppose this is the step one of my aspirations. Step two is the Channel 4 thing. So, for, so if National Theatre Scotland is uh, listening, mm -hmm. this is uh, for you. It ticks all those boxes, guys. So get in touch with Benjamin. Um, one quick last question. You did mention it briefly there about it being on the podcast and it's more accessible. What do you hope that the podcast will do for audiences listening to your work? 
Um, I mean, number one, I hope it entertains them. Um, I think, you know, that there are many different purposes for art. Um, I don't think I've I've not really gone into political history enough to, for this to be a message about class warfare. It's not really about how terrible monarchies are. It's not about anything particularly meaningful sociopolitically. It's just a piece of entertainment. And if you're entertained by grisly, gruesome stories of people doing horrific things to other people, um, which are very, very popular, <laughs> then then <laughs> this is hopefully one that that just offers a little bit different a little bit new to the to the slate of things that are already out there um and hopefully people will next time something crops up with my name on it people will be keen to listen but yeah for the for the most part i would say i just i just hope people enjoy it i hope it's an entertaining piece of theater a, a diverting piece of, uh, of drama for uh, for a couple of hours well thank you very much that is us for your questions which will be broken down into an interview style film slash audio uh, the next are just about um quick fire small social media bites uh, which will just be cut and put on patreon i'm not sure if i'm going to put them onto like a, a youtube stories or anything like that yet i'm still okay. very much playing around with it and playing around with series to begin with so we've got 20 questions how, how long are the answers to be roughly? It's up to you. Up okay. to you. Um, they don't need to be long. They don't need to be short. Just cool. be as truthful and how you answer it. And uh, we'll go from there. Um, this will be my first time actually using the software. So I'm hoping when I cut it, when we stop, I can put it through AI and it will cut it for me. But we'll wait and see <laughs> okay. i might need to cut and that's how i've been kind of sitting here with numbers and a little bit of paper going yep need to cut there need to start there because i never done that for the last one and i've spent mm -hmm. three hours looking over each bit and writing down numbers <laughs> to time frames so anyway we'll begin okay. um benjamin how do you create re start again benjamin how do you create relatable characters when you're writing um, I imagine every character I write as if I'm going to be cast in the role. Um, so what would I like to say? How would I like to play the character? What would I like to an audience to think about my performance? Uh, and that, that informs, uh, informs my writing. There are no, there are no small parts, only small people. <laughs> what is your writing process? And do you have any unique habits or routines? Um, my writing process generally involves a great deal of um, thinking, of talking to myself, of acting out scenes, muttering to myself, getting strange looks off people in the pub or on the bus, um, and then a great deal of end-loaded panic when I realise that I need to get it all down on paper because someone needs to read it. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of time is spent thinking and going over dialogue and going over character choices, um, and then as the deadline approaches, then the the fingers get warmed up and I jump on the keyboard and bash it out as quickly as I can. Um, then, of course, is the editing process. But we don't talk about that. How does your personal experiences or background influence your writing? Um, well, I come from a, a fairly working class background and I do like to see, um, if not always the main character, I do like to see um, 
characters from a more humble background. Um, I, I don't like really seeing great professors when I could be seeing a poor student or kings and queens when I could be seeing, uh, you know, a, a soldier. I love the sharp books um, and the, the TV series of Sean Bean. And I think that, that that's the kind of story that interests me. That's the kind of story I want to write, the story about the actual people, not the not the, the stamps and the coins that rule everyone. Difficult question for you. How do you handle criticism of your work? I don't know what you mean. I've never had any. Um, <laughs> no. Um, every, every piece of criticism, every time someone says something, whether it's positive praise or uh, whether it's constructive criticism, um, or even if it's just an insult levelled at you, that they're engaging with your work. And so what you need to do is, or I do, try to do, is to take myself out of the situation, to analyse the feedback, um, and then think, can I do better based on this? If I can, I will try and do better. If I can't, I can discard it. What was the first book that influenced you? Um, the first book that really influenced me was uh, a Roald Dahl book. It was um, Boy, his autobiography, and then subsequently Going Solo, which is two books, but it's kind of, it's all his autobiography. Um, I'd read some Roald Dahl before. I, I read, you know, a, a bunch of stuff, The Weirdstone of Brissingham and by Alan Garner, books that I really liked, The Hobbit. Um, but it was Boy and Going Solo that made me realise you could write a true story and it could still be really interesting and really entertaining. Um, it was the first non-fiction book, the first certainly uh, bi uh, biography that engaged me as much as a fictional book did. Um, so that, yeah, I think those are the two of the ones that stand out most in my mind. How do you find time to write and what is your preferred time of day for writing? I don't really have one. A lot of writers will swear by a routine. They'll say, get by the typewriter at 12 o'clock and don't leave till two, two hours a day, every day. I can't do that, unfortunately. I, I'm a sort of a more strike when the iron's hot kind of guy. If I've just got up and I, an idea for a scene comes into my head, I'm, I'm on that keyboard writing up that scene or writing up detailed notes for the scene. If it's the middle of the night and I'm just about to fall asleep and a line of dialogue pops into my head, I've got to get that written down before I sleep because I'll forget it otherwise. Um, so it's quite chaotic and quite sporadic. It's like doing a jigsaw by just picking up a random piece at a time and trying to put it in the right place. Eventually you might end up with a really nice jigsaw, but you're going to have a lot of swear words in between starting and finishing. Um, that's kind of my technique. If you could go back time, as Cher says, um, what advice would you give your younger self as a writer? Hmm. Write more, write more, do it more, write more, send it off to more people. No, no one's going to judge you unless you send your stuff them there to judge. You know, no, no one's going to um, take a chance on you without seeing what they're taking a chance on. So write more uh, and, and send it out to people. Um, and I would give that advice to any young or aspiring writers as well. Write more write anything that comes into your head, pick out the good stuff afterwards and then send it off to whoever you can send it off to. What was the best investment you ever made as a writer? So as an example of that, somebody said that they bought a typewriter and that's what they used, right? So what did you spend money on that's helped you as a writer? Um, obviously a, a laptop with Microsoft Word, um, other software is available. Um, but I think for me, um, I think it would be 
there's a, there's a, a series, a, a, not a number of books, sort of r how to write books. Um, and one of them is called um, Save the Cat. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's an American book, and it's basically how to write Hollywood screenplay formula. And I don't think I have ever, nor will ever, take any advice from that book. But reading the advice made me realise exactly what kind of stuff I didn't want to write. You know, no one's ever coming to me to ask to write a Transformers movie, but I, I never would. You know, I, I don't think you need to save the cat every time. That's the thesis of the book, save the cat or you'll turn the audience off. Well, I don't agree with that. The stuff that I like and the stuff that I want to write is, is more, is not, not provocative. I don't want to be provocative, but is, is more in service to the story and not in service to a formula. And that book, I think, really helped me to understand the formula that I wanted to avoid. Can you talk about your early writing experiences and when you decided to pursue writing professionally? Um, so my early writing, there was a lot of uh, short stories. There was a lot of um, attempts at starting novels that didn't go anywhere. Um, and then I read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy audio plays, not the books. I did read the books, but it was the audio plays that made me realise how strong of a tool script writing can be for the kind of ideas that I wanted to do. Um, I love Douglas Adams as a writer, absolutely beyond measure. Um, and, and that was kind of the turning point. So I started writing things that were less things that I was trying to force myself into doing and more into things that felt natural. And that's when I started to think, well, actually, this could be something that that I do. I wrote a couple of plays that didn't go anywhere. And then um, I wrote a play. Uh, I was a, uh, working as a drama teacher at the time um, and I wrote a play for a school play. Um, and it was brilliant. It was it was 90 to 100 pages. It was a strong story. I enjoyed the characters. The kids that um, wanted to get involved all seemed to like it. And that was the, really the first moment I thought, OK, this could be a thing. Um, it's not just me being indulgent. Other people are getting value out of this. This this could be a thing. Um, and that was about 2008, 2009. Um, and I've done a couple of a couple of more productions since then. And I've started to branch out into into professional writing. How do you determine a particular place, appropriate tone or mood? A lot of artists um, work for themselves. And while I certainly do to an extent, I'm also thinking about others, specifically the audience. So I think it has to start with the audience. Who, who are you writing for? If you're writing something for kids, it needs to be appropriate for kids. Um, it needs to be uh, new and interesting. It needs to be fun. If you're writing for adults, it needs to have a sense of honesty to it that you don't necessarily have with a kid's piece. You know, the hero always wins in a kid's piece. The hero doesn't always win in an adult's piece. And I think I think once you've got the audience pegged, whether it's the age of the audience, the gender of the audience, the the, uh, the ethnic background or religion of the audience, the class of the audience, once you've got that decided, you've created your ideal audience member in your head. That's how I help to work out the tone. Um, if I'm writing something, say, for example, like the vagina monologues, um, that that comes from wanting to write a play for women. Um, it's, obviously, it's by a woman. I wouldn't ever think dream of writing something like that myself. Um, but 
also then if I'm writing a pantomime for a bunch of primary school children, um, you, you don't want to be talking about, you know, bodily hygiene and you don't want to be talking about patriarchy and male oppression to, to a five year old. So, yeah, it's, it's about it's about working out who your audience is and then and then working from there. Can you share a memorable experience while writing one of your plays? Yes, um, I was writing a play again. One of my one of my earlier um, school productions, and one of the pupils who I'd worked with, I, I taught her drama through from uh, third year through to fifth year, um, and she came and she asked, "Could she help write it?" Um, so both as a writer and as a teacher, both of my sort of uh, my my lights were flashing. Both of my sort of happy sounds were spinning off in my head. I thought, well, here's a girl who, you know, who, who wants to write something. So clearly she's got that desire to be a writer, which I respect. She wants to write something with or for me. So clearly, you know, there's a, there's a good working relationship there. Um, so I let her. Basically, I wrote um, the, the framing story and she wrote flashbacks. Um, and we put it all together. It went really well. Um, but it was it was that moment when she approached me to ask, can she take part that really made me just, I, it just really, it just really inspired me. It, it made me really happy. Good job done. Good. Um, next question. What inspires you the most as a writer and what does literary success mean to you? So literary success would be people such as yourself um, wanting to engage with me as a writer. Um, fortune would be brilliant. You know, a big a big castle somewhere in the borders or a, a mansion in New York would be fabulous. Um, but I could get that winning the lottery. I, I, I want people to think I'm decent. I want people to want to do my stuff, basically. That's 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 the the real hallmark of success for me um what inspires me um i'm inspired by by film and theater um tv as well tv these days has, has become really really good quality um compared to 15 20 years ago um when i see something that is new interesting unusual um my first instinct is to want to copy it my second instinct is jealousy and my third instinct is to want to recapture that feeling in somebody else um so so that that's what inspires me is being surprised by by good stuff and wanting it it, it then makes me want to go and do my own good stuff that will hopefully again in a fantasy world inspire someone else to go and do their own good stuff and and i become a chain in this sort of um idea of, of influencing other other writers you know I, again I, I know that's probably never going to happen it's I, i'm not under no illusions but that's that's kind of what inspires me never say never never say well, never indeed. Benjamin. indeed name a book that changed your perspective on something in life i'm going to go back to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy is one of the most genius books ever written not only because it's funny uh, which is a matter of subjective taste, and not only because it's clever, um, which isn't, it just is a clever book, but it's one of the only books that deals with nihilism in a way that is not overly 
goth and miserable and whingy and whiny. It's, oh, God, the world's so bad. It's one of the first and, and only examples I can think of, or one of the only examples, that deals with nihilism as a matter of fact. Because we live in a world where bad things happen and people die and tragedies happen and you, you can't descend in, you know, when Gandalf, spoilers for Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf falls off the bridge and they spend the next half an hour crying about it, you can't, you can't do that in real life. And I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy found a realistic, believable way to touch upon that aspect of life. Sometimes stuff's going to happen that you're not going to want to happen and you've just got to crack on with it. Um, so yeah, that, that changed my outlook on life. I was about, I think, 12 or 13 when I first listened to the radio show and then read the book straight after that and then, you know, watched the TV series straight after that. And, and that, that story, that narrative uh, is one of the biggest touchstones for me in terms of my outlook on life. What experience do you want listeners and audiences to have when listening to audio theatre content, particularly yours? So particularly mine, again, I want them to be um, entertained. I want them to enjoy listening to it. I want them to want to to listen to the next one. I want them to feel excited for episodes two, three, and four. Um, I It would make me really happy if the zeitgeist veered more towards audio drama and podcasts. I think as a as a, an art form, it took off really strongly in the mid-2000s, and it kind of stalled a little bit. And I wish more people listened to podcasts and listened to audio dramas. Uh, obviously, audio dramas have been around for, for donkey's years. Radio 4 does some great work and, and independent companies do as well. But I think podcasts provide easily accessible, not quite bite-sized, but the, in terms of, of time commitment, some are 15 minutes, some are two hours long. It's so variable. You don't have to fit into a, a particular time slot. So it's, it's, it's malleable in terms of how much time it demands of the audience. Um, and I, I, just think, I just think as an art form, it's going to be maybe not our next great art form like cinema was, like TV was in the 20th century, but I think it is definitely going to be a significant part of, of people's artistic lives and artistic engagement. And I think the quicker that happens and, and the more podcasts like this can, can show people what a podcast medium can do, the, the better, in my opinion. What other activities do you engage in when you're not writing? What's your hobbies? Oof. Um, I, I like going to the cinema. Uh, I like going to the theater. I like watching TV. I'm very much into the things that I, that I do in terms of writing, um, and drama. Um, uh, I do enjoy a game of squash. Um, I, uh, I read, uh, I read books and comic books. I think again, as a dyslexic person, as a, a former teacher of, of drama and also of English, um, I find that comic books are really great for people that either don't or can't or won't um, read. It's a way to engage them in literacy without giving them a, a big white page full of black text. So I'm, I'm very fond of, of comic books and graphic novels. Um, Socialising with my pals. Um, I've got a daughter. I love spending time with her and, and doing activities with her. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of my my social life in a nutshell. Before the next question, the Batman comics. Oh my God, so dark, so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Some of Frank Miller's stuff is brilliant, and the, the Long Halloween. Um, yeah, there's some really good Batman stuff out there. 
Far too dark, but amazing. <laughs> uh, next question. <laughs> what is your favourite and least favourite aspect of writing and why? So my favourite aspect of writing, I think, is the planning. Um, I do like writing dialogue and I do like writing out scenes in, in, in proper format, but I like the planning. I like working out what's going to happen when, why should this happen then, who's he going to be, what are they going to do, what's she going to choose to do. I like that. I like the sort of the movable pieces of a, of a plan. And even when you come to write, they're still moving occasionally. Um, but that's what I like. I like being sort of the puppet master of these imaginary little puppets that all exist in my head. I like I like that, I think. Um, what do I like least is is the editing. Um, it's one of the most important parts of writing and it's one of the most choresome parts of writing. Um, when I finish a story, I like to think, oh, that was really good. That's brilliant. And it's only when I go back to look it back over, I think, oh, no, that's rubbish. Oh, no, that needs changing. Oh, I need to do that differently. And then you go through and you basically seeing how terrible you were first time, um, which is, you know, of course, that's part of the process. And that's essential. It, it just it does. It feels more like a chore than any other part of the process. Still better than doing an actual job, but, you know, still still a bit of a chore. Last question. Can you share three or any lesser known facts about yourself what do we not know i didn't know you were a teacher yeah 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 i'm not anymore um but i i was for a number of years um yeah what what else um i lived in london um before i moved up to, uh, to scotland um i've lived in london for five or six years and had a great time there um when I moved up to Scotland, the plan was always to move back to London eventually. Um, but Scotland's kind of got a way of digging its hooks into you and, and not making you want to leave. Um, I have stood on Kilimanjaro. Haven't been to the top. I was wanting to do a Christmas card. So I had a big piece of ripped up cardboard that said Merry Christmas and I had a Santa hat. And I parked myself at the bottom of Kilimanjaro with my camera set up and it was covered in cloud all day. So I'm sat in this cafe drinking cup of tea after cup of tea in Kenya. Um, and the clouds never cleared. We had to get back on the on the van and, and leave the next part of the holiday. And as I look in the sort of rearview mirror, as I, as I look behind us, what do I see in the distance? A perfectly clear Kilimanjaro. So I've been on it. But I have no evidence, <laughs> photographic or otherwise, that I've been on it, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's probably enough in terms of facts. <laughs> if you have that picture, you now know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Benjamin. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. It really has. Thank you, Barry.